All right, if you can turn to Acts chapter 7 and find verse 54 and hold your place there. Acts 7, 54 is where we're beginning. I want to share a story with you. Um, this, this took place uh, five years ago or something. It's been a while. Hosanna was pretty little. Um, and she gave me permission to share this story. Um, but we were in the car and... I guess maybe before I tell you the story, I should tell you, we're not a family that is into like one-upping each other, you know, um, we've not, we just don't tend to do that, and, um, but knowing that, we're in the car, and we're having a discussion, and Miley shared with the kids that she had gotten, one time she had been bit by a goose, we were at Farm Park, and we were walking, and one came right up and just bit her right on the leg. So she said that she, one time she'd been bit by a goose, and Hosanna said, no, you didn't. And Miley said, yeah, I did, and it hurt. And Hosanna said, well, do you remember when I was killed by a goose? Which <laughs> I thought, how do, you, how do you top that? You know, like, <laughs> so, uh, so we're not a family that tends to do that, but that was a situation where, you know, Someone wanted to top her story, so she went to the ultimate extreme. Um, so we don't tend to do that, but we are people, um, just in our nature, I, I will freely admit this, I'm a complainer. I like to play the martyr. So um, I had a situation this week where I was complaining, and uh, we, had a, we have a crew at our house all week long gutting and redoing a shower, and I was sitting there as our life was disrupted and I was frustrated with the former owners of the house for the health hazard they put our family in and the safety hazard they put our family in and all of the things that were coming about that were like, we need to probably do this and this and this. And, and so I was, you know, struggling with some frustration and anger this week and, and God brought some things to my mind as I was studying for the sermon that just uh, realigned my thinking uh, one of them was the contractor told me a story about another situation they're currently working on, and it's a far worse than mine. Sounds like a complete nightmare. Their estimated cost doubled at least, and that's not including the labor. That's just in the materials, and and it's going to be uh, what they thought was a one-week project is going to be at least three weeks. So, like, I'm listening to this, and I'm like, that sounds awful. And then I had a couple other things and then I got the text from Gloria about Doug and uh, and I thought you know my life is not that bad the, all the stuff that I'm frustrated about they're just inconveniences that are that I will come to an end and I can deal with um, so even though I play the martyr a lot God helped me this week to realize you know things aren't that bad but there are people who really are in situations that are suffering um, with illness or they're suffering with um, disabilities or they're in situations where they're being spiritually oppressed uh, around the world. We have believers in Christ who are afraid to leave their house because they don't know what will happen. And so there are people that are really dealing with stuff that is much more important than the things that I was dealing with. And one of those is Stephen. And I think that might have been why 
God brought this to my mind as I was studying this text. Um, so we're going to look at, last week he gave his defense before the Sanhedrin and he was very accusatory toward them. He said, you, you've, you've accused me of being an offense against the temple and an offense against God's word, and you are actually the ones who have made this temple the work of your hands, your idol, and you are the ones who receive God's word handed down to you by angels, and you are the ones who have not obeyed it. And so very accusatory in his defense. And so we're going to look this morning, starting in verse 54, how they respond to that, and then what God does to bring about good in the midst of what looks like a nightmare for the church. So if you are able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? Starting in verse 54 of Acts chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, they being the Sanhedrin, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pray. God, as we look at this text, teach us what we need to know so that this week when we leave from this place and we enter back into the world that's hostile toward you that we might find hope and encouragement in what you did here with Stephen and what you did here with your church in Jesus name amen go ahead and have a seat so in your notes we're going to break this text into two parts we're going to look at the the first part's going to be um, the end of 7, chapter 7. The second part's going to be the beginning of chapter 8. And the first thing that we're going to look at in your notes is what is I'm calling the catalyst, which is the stoning of Stephen. But it was a catalyst which brought about a reaction. Every reaction has a cause, right? So that cause here is the event where they're stoning Stephen. And I want to look at how Stephen's life is so... Um, wrapped up with Christ. So everything we see in this part of chapter 7 talks about, or shows us in, or indicates to us how Stephen's focus was on Christ to the very last breath. So the first thing we're going to see is that Stephen saw a vision of Jesus. 
excuse me, Stephen saw a vision of Jesus, says, and we're going to look at verses 55 and 56. And that's where Stephen says, he looks up to heaven and he says that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He was a believer, so he had the Spirit indwelling him. Luke goes out of his way to indicate to us that Stephen is a man full of the Holy Spirit and God's grace. He mentions that a number of times in chapter 6 into 7. And then he mentions it again here in 55. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. But I think what's going on here is a little different than just being somebody who's guided by the Spirit as he lives his life. I think when Stephen is being stoned, I think we're seeing the Holy Spirit intensifying his presence with him to help him to endure the the stoning as he's being executed for his faith to help him to endure that suffering to be able to persecute uh, persevere persevere and remain faithful and so once again even to the very end of his life luke is reminding us how active the spirit is in stephen's life now he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And this was the same group that Jesus stood before when he was on trial. And he said to them, and this is found in uh, Mark chapter 14, Jesus, when he was on trial, said to this group of men, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Stephen is beginning to see a portion of what Jesus said would take place because God allows him to see the spiritual realm. He opens up heaven and Stephen's able to see God sitting on his throne and Jesus standing next to him. So I think being in front of the same crowd of people that Jesus said that to, uh, I, w I just wonder if Stephen's words hit a nerve with the Sanhedrin because what you see is they're already angry enough that they are gnashing their teeth at him, but, um, but you see that they, they kick into high gear here and begin to, they drag him out of the city and begin to stone him. So I just wonder if that just fueled their anger towards Stephen. Now I want you to notice Stephen says that he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, okay? Um, I've read some commentaries that have indicated that that might be the proper posture of a person who's advocating for someone to stand next to the judge who has somebody on trial and they're advocating for them. Um, I spoke with Don a little bit about this uh, a couple weeks ago or last week maybe. Um, Don has done a pretty extensive study of cross-referencing scriptures uh, in terms of this and um, he said as he unfolded things in God's word it looked like there was this theme that uh, um, a person standing at the side of a at the side of a judge would be standing there for judgment um, and I think honestly I think the two go hand in hand I think an advocate would be saying this one belongs to me and therefore casting judgment down on those who are mistreating him or a judge who's saying this action is wrong would then also be advocating for the person who's being wronged. And so I wonder if the two just go hand in hand that Jesus um, is maybe serving in both roles. But we can say for sure that Jesus is, uh, 
he is acting on behalf of Stephen. In Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Jesus said to uh, his listeners, he said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Stephen has been a man who has been acknowledging with boldness Christ and his centrality in all of God's plan of salvation. He has not been ashamed of Christ in any way. And so Christ is going to stand there and vouch for him before the Father as one who belongs to him, has been covered by his blood for his salvation. Um, but it's this very thing that the Sanhedrin is trying to put him to death for. So the first thing that we see is that Stephen sees a vision of Jesus. In v verses 57 and 58, we see that Stephen was put to death like Jesus. And I don't mean he was executed in the same manner because Jesus was crucified. Uh, but he was put to death, meaning for his faith in Jesus, just as Jesus was put to death for his claims. Uh, 57 says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, while the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Uh, so this is in accordance with the Leviticus 24, where God instructs his people through the law that if someone is a blasphemer, they are to take them outside of the city limits and stone them. Um, that's what they did to Jesus. They called Jesus a blasphemer. They took him outside of the city and put him to death on a cross. Um, here, they dragged Stephen outside of the city and they put him to death by stoning. Um, I find there here in this, these two verses, I find an ironic symbolism because they are they are people who have uncircumcised ears. That's what Stephen calls them in the end of his defense in chapter 7. He says um, that they have uncircumcised, they're uncircumcised in their heart and their ears. And so the, here are these people who have uncircumcised ears. They don't have what Jesus called ears to hear. They're spiritually deaf. And yet they're covering their ears as if to not you know to not hear something um, it's almost like you ever seen a child or maybe a group of children <laughs> but a child who doesn't want to hear what you're saying because they don't want to accept instruction or discipline and so they cover their ears and they go la 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 la, la I can't hear you um are we dealing with children here? They're, they're, so, they're so offended by what Stephen said that they cover their ears and they scream at the top of their lungs so they don't have to hear him speak the truth. These people who have uncircumcised ears, who are spiritually deaf, are covering their ears, and I, I see this ironic symbolism because they're covering their ears to prevent the truth from entering. And the thing is, is they've already indicated that they are not people who will receive the truth when it's spoken to them. And so they cover their ears, they scream at the top of their lungs, they drag him out of the city to stone him. And so Stephen suffers for his faith in Christ, becomes the first martyr 
um, for the sake of faith in Christ. And, um, and they put him to death just like they did his, his Lord. So we know, that, uh, we know that God gives us revelation of himself like he gave Stephen and Stephen saw the vision. We know that God calls us to suffer and maybe even lay down our life for Christ as he laid down his life for us just like Stephen laid down his life for Jesus. We also see in verses 59 and 60 that Stephen prayed like Jesus. In 59, it says, while, we were st- while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so Stephen's prayer and his attitude sound almost identical to the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross when he was being put to death, um, asking for the forgiveness of those who are, who are killing him. Jesus did that in Luke 23. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And Stephen said, God, don't hold this sin against them. And I, as we look through Scripture and as we look to Stephen as an example, I, you know, I want to be a person who's full of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a person who reacts the way Stephen did. I don't know how easily this would come to me. If somebody was causing me harm, uh, was persecuting me, was trying to put me to death for my faith, I would hope that the Holy Spirit would intensify himself in me to be able to pray like this for their forgiveness for what they're doing. So if we compare Stephen's trial and his death with the trial and the death of Jesus, we see a number of things that are similar. So you've got some scriptures in your, in your notes. I'm going to tell you what corresponds with those. Um, I don't think I have them on the notes up here, so I'm just going to read them to you. But in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and then Acts chapter 6, we see in both of those that uh, Stephen was accused of similar things that, that Jesus was accused of, which is how they got them both before the Sanhedrin. They were both accused of an offense against the temple. And remember, we talked last week about how the temple was the work of the hands of the Jews um, that uh, the Jewish leaders were spiritually arrogant and they were, they'd replaced God as their God that they were worshiping and they were wrapped up in their own glory with the work of their hands in the temple. Well, Stephen and Jesus both were accused of speaking against that and so it was something that would stir in them um, anger and action. Uh, your text, the reference to Luke 22 and Acts chapter 7, 56, which is in our text today, Stephen receives the vision about which Jesus spoke about at his own trial. That's Luke 22 and Acts chapter 7. Your reference to Leviticus 24, I mentioned earlier, they are both taken out of the city to be executed. And your reference for Luke 23 and Acts chapter 7, which is also in our text today, um, they pray similar prayers as, they are, as they're dying by the hands of men. So, 
Stephen, this man who's full of the Holy Spirit, who God used to do some gr- pretty great things, is now, he's now been put to death. And I imagine that, so this is different persecution than what has happened so far. So far they've been beaten, the apostles have been beaten, they've been the reigning, the ruling body of Jewish leaders has threatened them and said, no more of this discussion about this guy named Jesus. But now they've actually taken the life of one of them. And I imagine the church was probably in awe, not in awe like a good, but in like shock of what uh, just happened and wondering, you know, who's next? So that's the catalyst. Stephen was stoned for his defense and his accusation of the of the leading Jewish men, and they stoned him. And so as we get into chapter 8, we're going to see the reaction to the catalyst. And the reaction is a wide-scale persecution of the church. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1, what we see there is that the church also very connected to Jesus and, and relating to him, the church was scattered for Jesus. And I don't mean that they were, that they were scattered, um, that they went out because they were wanting to go out and tell people about Jesus. They were scattered for their faith in him through this persecution. Uh, verse 1 says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the apostles, the, the, the twelve remained, but the rest of the church was scattered into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. Now, Acts 1.8, not 8.1, but Acts 1.8 is where Jesus gives the commission to the church. And he says to them, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and, all, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus told them, you're going to, take this out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But until this point, the church has remained in Jerusalem. So when the persecution breaks out, the church is then scattered, where? To Judea and Samaria. So even though persecution is not the plan, for the, you know, the church doesn't get up in the morning and say, okay, guys, um, today we're going to be persecuted. Looking forward to this. See what God's going to do. Uh, it wasn't the plan, but it did actually serve a purpose. God uses this persecution to advance the gospel. He takes it. It's the beginning of the gospel going outside of Jerusalem. Uh, I had a professor in college who said to us, if we do not obey Acts 8.1, take it out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. If we do not obey Acts 1.8, Acts sorry, if we do not obey Acts 1.8, we will get Acts 8.1. If we don't take it out, then God will, God is going to accomplish it somehow. And so even though this, persecution looks like an awful thing they just they've just taken the life of one of the 
one of the leaders in the church. They have now gone on to this widespread persecution and they've scattered the church. But God is he's in this all the way. He's got this plan and he's taking his word out for the salvation of those who need to hear it outside of Jerusalem. Um, Luke uses some specific words in this section, these, these three verses. He uses a couple of specific words that I want to bring your attention to because I think that they help understand, uh, maybe at least give you a picture of what might have been going on. So in, in this um, text here, uh, verse 1, the word that he uses for scattered, you have in your notes, it's diaspero. That, that's not the normal word that someone would have used to write scattered. There was a word that was pretty common for that. This word is scattering like you would scatter seed. So it's like what a farmer would do when he's sowing seed. Okay, and so the seed then lands on, on the ground and begins to take root and then begins to flourish as it grows. That's the word Luke uses here. So I think what God is doing, since Luke uses a, a, a word that's not a typical word that you would use here, I think what God is doing is he's used this persecution to scatter the gospel into areas that need to hear it, into the areas where they've not, they've not come to an understanding of who Christ is, and they need to hear the, the good news of his salvation. Uh, sacrifice and resurrection for our salvation. I think God is sprinkling or scattering the the seed, and I think what he's what he's doing with this specific word is indicating that that, that is going to land on the hearts of the people who need to hear it, and it's going to take root. It's not going to take root in everybody, but seed doesn't take root in every type of soil, right? That's the parable of the soils. But it's going to land on the hearts of the people, and it's going to take root in some, and God is going to continue to advance the gospel even though he had to use persecution to do it. Um, Tertullian was an early church father and um, he was speaking with uh, the... I, don't, I can't remember if he was speaking, what, what official he was speaking with, but he was speaking with an official in the Roman uh, government. And he said to them, he was talking to them about... Uh, persecuting the believers. And he said to them, the oftener, we don't use that word in English today, but the oftener, more often, the oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. And so Tertullian had recognized at at this point in history this was early on, but he'd recognized when they persecute the church, God uses that to spread the gospel. And as he spreads the gospel through that persecution, uh, sometimes through, through the martyrdom of some of his servants, uh, people are coming to Christ. They're coming to faith. They're converting and they're finding their hope in Christ. And so he said, the, the oftener you, m- you have mown us down, the more number we grow, the blood of Christians is seed. So the church was scattered for Jesus because they believed in Jesus and this persecution came and God is using it to 
plant the seeds in the hearts of those in Judea and Samaria. The second thing we see is that the church was persecuted uh, for their faith in Christ. So not only were they scattered, but there was this heavy persecution that has now started. Verse 3 says that Saul, who we first hear about Saul when Stephen was being stoned, he was a Pharisee, he became the Apostle Paul, but at the time he wasn't a believer, and uh, when they were stoning Stephen, he was approving of his death, and they were, all the guys who were stoning him needed to be able to throw well, can't be restricted by their coats, so they take their outer garments off and they lay him at Saul's feet while he watches passively them stoning him. But verse 3 tells us that Saul then became active. It was not a passive thing for long. He began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and he put them in prison. Now, this is the first, the stoning, and then this verse here is when we really first hear about Saul. He eventually becomes a main character in most of the book of Acts, at least the second half, but he, he begins to become the main character real soon after this when he is converted. But um, according to Paul, it is as, as he is, Luke is writing Acts, but Luke was traveling with Paul, and so I'm, I'm gathering that Luke got this from Paul in his conversations with him. But in 22 and 20, um, we're told that Paul, and I think he's actually giving his defense here before someone, and he says, as they were stoning Stephen, as they were, as they were killing him, I was giving approval. And so this man who, who is going to become a servant of Christ at first was in hot pursuit of trying to bring down the church. And his, this other, the second word I wanted to tell you that Luke uses that's a specific word is the word elumineto, elumineto. Um, and Warren Wiersbe, as he did a study on that, a word study on that word, um, said that this, uh, this word is like a wild animal mangling its prey. And that's the word that Luke uses to describe what Paul was doing to the church. Paul was hunting down the church, and, and he, it wasn't like Mayberry, where Andy Griffith can go, Andy Taylor, his character in the, in the show, can go to somebody who's causing a problem, and he can talk him down and say, okay, let's go, let's go on down to the station, and they willingly go with him, and everything ends up flowery and good, right? It's not that. Paul is hunting them down. He's, he's going on a search to find who are, who are the people who are, who are stirring up the most discord with this teaching of Jesus, and, and he's dragging them off to prison. He is a wild animal in hot pursuit of his prey. And it's that kind of zeal and passion that he used when he was persecuting the church that... Um, and that beca- that w- he did that because he thought that they were worshiping a false god. He thought that they were blasphemers, they were preaching heresy. But it's that zeal and that passion that you're, you well know, but we're going to get into as we move through Acts. And after Paul is saved, he takes that exact same amount of energy and zeal and passion as he 
goes to defend Christ and as he goes to proclaim Christ and as he goes to what he said, I want to go to places where there is no foundation so I'm not building off of what someone else has done. I want to go to places where they have never heard of him and he goes with a passion and he preaches Christ and he is willing to even lay down his life for Christ if he has to. And so Paul is going to become a servant an advocate for Christ, an advocate for the church, but right now he is trying to bring it down. He's trying to destroy the church, and he thinks, it's the scary thing is he thinks he's being obedient. He thinks he's serving God and doing this. So how scary is that for us to think that we could be so off in our thinking that, um, that we could actually end up harming the church in the name of Jesus. And I know a lot of churches that have done this. Um, I've spent some time in the last couple of weeks with some pastors who have been uh, victims of that. And we, we too often lose sight of Christ and then we go in hot pursuit of what we think we're doing to be faithful and we're actually harming his, his bride. Um, so that's a scary thing, and I, I pray that God would always, always make his will clear to us so that we know we're walking in faithfulness. Okay, so as Stephen was an example for us, and as the church then as a reaction or as a result of the persecution and the stoning of Stephen, his execution, uh, the church is then persecuted and scattered. Uh, we... I just want to remind you that th we go through bad things in life. We have people that we love that are going through bad things in life. We, it could be suffering for our health, with our health. It could be suffering uh, in relationships. We could have a broken family. We could have uh, people we love that are in a broken family, um, broken marriages all over. Um, we, it could be spiritual persecution. It could be things that people are doing to oppress us because of our faith. We're going to go through a lot of crud in life. But I want to leave you with this. The church, I'm sure, did not look at the stoning of Stephen when it first happened as a good thing. But Stephen himself was able to recognize, I'm, I'm going to be with my Lord. I see him. He's just waiting for me. The church, I'm sure, didn't think when it first took place, persecution first took place, that being scattered so that they didn't have the support of the body of Christ like they once did in the full amount, probably did not think that that was a good thing. But God saw that he was strategically placing them where they needed to be so that the gospel would continue to move out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And so I just want to remind you and leave you with this, that when we go through things, whether we perceive them to be good or bad, and a lot of times that's our perception. I'm not downplaying anything that you've gone through that's hard. But when we perceive it to be either good or a bad thing, God is working out every one of those things, every detail of every one of those things, to do two things. To bring himself glory by spreading the gospel. And... He's working out for what is best for us. Those are promises in his word. He works out all things for the good of those who love him. 
So I want to just leave you with that so that the next time you go through something hard or the next time you are trying to comfort someone you love that's going through something hard, that God does not leave his children alone to suffer for no reason. There is always gospel purpose in all of it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the example you give us in Stephen. And not just Stephen. Um, we see all throughout your word other people that are examples of suffering for your name, willing to lay down their life for your name. Um, we see that uh, you are working all of those things out for our blessing, even though we can't see it at the time because it's, it's difficult to see through the suffering and the pain and the persecution to see how it can be good for us. But it is. We trust you in that. And I just pray that you continue to remind us whenever we need it, whether it's us going through it or someone we're trying to help counsel through something hard. Always give us the perspective that you have that sees your purpose in it and sees that there is, there is going to be an advancement of the gospel through that. And there's going to be a drawing of us closer to you in a deeper intimacy with you like Stephen had. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.